0: This is IVP.
1: This is the Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from Intervarsity City Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like okay. I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Dominique Gilliard, were you raised in an evangelical context? Yep, born and raised. The very first church I was
0: raised in was a Black Baptist church, but that lasted maybe seven years of my life. At how were you? How old were you at the time? Seven. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, so oh, yeah, from okay. birth to seven. See, so in the Baptist then, church,
1: they don't count until you baptize. So <laughs> <laughs> you were attending, but you didn't, exactly. until the Spirit hit you. Exactly. You got the water put on you; it didn't count. I hope that um, everybody on the podcast will take a look at his book. And if you see his name on the internet, you should follow him on Twitter and social media and sign up for all of the things that he goes to speak at. So, I'm passionate about mass incarceration from my experience. So, what I did is I used my Christian faith to make sense of what happened to me and to spur me on to action and to allow me to have healing so that, you know, I'm not in a rage all of the time. But this is deeply personal to me. Like, I have families, my family members who've been in prison who come out and who are victims of what the system does to black and brown people in this country. I I refuse a kind of a standpoint of disinterest. I was surprised that initially it wasn't what happened to him personally that motivated him. It was seeing it somewhere else.
0: Undergrad, I did double major, history in African American studies, went on to do a master's in U.S. history with a focus on race, gender, and class from the
1: 18th to 21st century. But there was a time where... It's kind of like this growing race consciousness, especially about from people who kind of came out of evangelical institutions and churches and then went to college. Did you feel like that you were responding to something when you went and you decided to do Afro-American studies and become a professor? Or is that just something that was interesting to
0: you? No, nah, it was always in me. So I grew up in Atlanta in the shadows of Dr. King. And so this understanding, this understanding of the role that— Racial righteousness plays within one's faith expression and walk has always been, you know, integral to the DNA of what I understood it meant to follow Jesus. And so, my father, for example, worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for ten years, and so he was part of the lineage of King's legacy. And he used to make me, when I was seven, eight years old, I was a baseball player, star baseball player, and so I always wanted to be outside, I wanted to be playing, wanted to be doing everything. But before uh, the summer reading gap and learning gap became a thing. Yeah. My father used to make us watch the Eyes on the Prize documentary Man, I and been- then write book report, uh, movie reports before I could go out and play. So this was in the DNA of who I was
1: and how I was raised. We watched Eyes on the Prize, I think, every year. <laughs> for Black History Month, my social study professor, it was, it was, every podcast yeah. I slide in an Outcast reference. Yeah,
0: let's do it, let's do it. Outcast goodie, mob, shout out to yeah. all the folks. People didn't know.
1: I mean, like, oh my goodness, I need to stop. I need to let this man have his podcast. But once you, once you said Atlanta and Eyes on a Prize, you're like my brother from a different mother. Right, let's do it. So anyways, you said that you grew up listening to Eyes on Prize, so you wanted to study Afro you, you majored in that and then you went to grad school for it
0: yeah yeah so well I actually went to grad school for history because yeah. the school that I went well one because history is a little bit more marketable and if you do African American studies they'll box you out of the history programs and if you do history then you can teach the both And and so you know my parents taught me to be strategic and so I um, went and studied history with a focus on race gender and class from the 18th to 21st century and thought I was going on to do a doctoral program in history. Uh, I did my master's thesis on a re-envisioning of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. I applied for doctoral programs because at this point, this was right when there was this new thing where you can do early admission to doctoral programs. And so I applied, and then my mom bamboozled me into going on to two missions trips that summer. Uh, (laughs) One domestic, one international. And uh, over the course of the two missions trips, the one domestic was in Oakland, California, and And we went and it was focused on multi-ethnicity and justice within the church. Um, And we went and had a chance to meet with uh, leaders from social movements outside of the church um, who told us kind of the circumstances that gave rise to the movement. Uh, talked about the silence of the church in the midst of the movement and the implications of that silence, and then kind of spoke prophetically back to us at that time to say, this is what the church could and should be doing now if they really want to live into what the gospel calls them to be. And that was just, for me, it was just really this prophetic charge to re-examine my faith and re-examine what it meant for us to ethically bear witness to all the things that we proclaim. It really uh, compelled me to kind of Go so back to the text and really, really re-examine in light of the the. F- the witness of Dr. King and everything that was so influential to me, where was the church's witness in the world like that today? And so we got a chance to meet with one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party. We got to meet with uh, Cesar Chavez is number two. And then we got a chance to go to Angel Island and look at immigration and detainment on the West Coast, particularly for Asian Americans, most specifically for Chinese. And then we went down to LA to Japanese internment camps. And every single place, the question kept coming up to me where was the witness of the church where was the voice of the church how could we shrink back and be silent in the midst of these uh catalytic moments these opportunities where we truly had a, a prime opportunity to bear witness to the love of christ to be um What scripture tells us, the world will come to know that we are Christians by our love. Like, where was our love in these watershed moments?
1: So when you you refer to the church, I can imagine someone who's listening in from, like, an African-American church context or maybe a Latino church context. There were sub-churches. Always. Always a remnant. The African-American church is known for its civil rights activism, but historically the African-American church... As The majority of us have never been involved in social action. Even within the African-American context, it's been a vocal minority. And the scope of the issues that we've considered have often been related to issues of concern for our community, which rightfully so. But, I mean— I can't imagine historically we've had a lot to do with issues like immigration and those kinds of things. And so even though it's easy for us to criticize the evangelical church, there is a sense in which even in the African-American context we can expand as it relates to issues of justice. Is that fair? For
0: sure. For sure. And I think that was one of the things that really kind of compelled me uh, because— We want people to stand in solidarity with us. We want people to stand up, speak up, and show up when we're being persecuted. But if we look critically at our history, have we demonstrated that same willingness to stand with our brothers and sisters who are being systemically preyed upon, historically and presently?
1: I'm teaching this class called The New Testament in Color. And at first, it's going to be on African-American church history, biblical interpretation, and theology. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm always trying to get someone to listen to us, but I hadn't read any Latino, Latina theologians in a significant amount or Asian American academics. So what it tends to be is that like African-Americans are trying to get white Christians to listen to them. Asian-Americans are trying to get white Christians to listen to them. And instead of being a dialogue across, even within Um, non-majority cultures in America. And so the the way we structured the class was we had a selection of reading of Latino, Latino scholars, selection of of, readings of Asian Americans and African Americans. And now we're trying to engage in a dialogue across the different ethnic groups as a way of saying, we acknowledge that part of what we're trying to do is not just get people to listen to us, but get people to look like the body of Christ and reflect the, the, the whole concerns of the body. So how did this get narrowed down for you to mass incarceration was there something from your family that led you in this direction
0: no um and that's always shocking for people um it it wasn't anything familially um so when i was a senior in in undergrad at georgia state university uh 10 miles away from my campus there was this uh community was stigmatized for drug trafficking so because of that officers were deployed and sent to do stakeouts to try to discern where the epicenter of drug trafficking was coming from um some officer one officer said that he had discerned where it was coming from and went to a judge and petitioned for something known as a no-knock warrant. A uh, no-knock warrant is a piece of legislation that allows officers to invade a premise without stopping to announce their presence as law enforcement or display a warrant before going in. No knock warrants are disproportionately given out in impoverished communities of color and most specifically associated with drug, uh drug Investigations. So um, the officer went and petitioned for the no-knock warrant and was granted it. Two nights later, him and two other officers came back to the house that the officer had discerned the epicenter of drug trafficking was flowing from. And they came back uh, with SWAT gear on, uh, full military-grade weaponry and armory, uh, bulldozed the doors with shotguns drawn. And the home happened to be owned by a 92-year-old grandmother who lived alone. Um, The 92-year-old grandmother, Catherine Johnston, uh, started to flee. She thought someone was invading her home to rob her. The officer said that she was trying to flee the scene. They deployed 38 bullets and fatally struck her in her living room after they struck her in her living room, uh, they decided to search the house. There was no drugs, no drug paraphernalia. The officers wanted to try to figure out how to legitimate what just transpired. Um, They crafted a narrative and stuck to that narrative all throughout the court proceedings. And then they tragically decided to plant drugs throughout her house to make it look like it was a botched drug raid. case goes to trial. The officers stick to that narrative they composed early in the morning in that living room until they found out that they're caught in their lie. And at that point, they confess to the whole thing. They confess to killing her without cause. They confess to planting drugs in our our house. And the first officer is found to have fabricated evidence to Get the no-knock warrant that actually legitimated the whole thing. When sentencing came down, um, the three officers were sentenced from a range of five to ten years, which is a fraction of the time that Captain Johnston would have gotten if she actually had been incarcerated for drug trafficking. Um, so I went back to school the next day, and my African-American studies professor said, as uh, concerned citizens, we had an ethical and moral responsibility to go advocate for systemic change So vulnerable people in communities like Catherine Johnston didn't continue to be systemically preyed upon like this. And I say, yes, that feels right. That feels good. That feels true. But then I went to church on Sunday and my church, instead of being 10 miles away from where this happened, was 15 miles away from where this happened. And they had absolutely nothing to say about it. And I said, if there should be anything that's compelling me to stand up for the least of these and defend the. Dignity of a vulnerable people. It should be my relationship with Jesus Christ, and not just my academic institution. And so that's really kind of what sent me on this trajectory.
1: I, I won't tell you all my cop stories. I got my
0: own story. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I'll just tell you briefly. I was so I'm anybody who knows me, I'm the hugest Duke Blue Devil basketball fan. And so um, I'm sorry. It's it's okay. I mean, I for God loves all people who don't know the <laughs> truth. Um, and so I uh, I was at North Park Theological Seminary. Uh, never. Been to Cameron, always wanted to go to Cameron to see a game firsthand. Has a number of friends who went to do Div because I almost went to do Div, but uh, God had different plans, and so um. Over Christmas break, they invited me to come back to the first game right after the semester starts. You know, those games are a little bit easier to get into. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I will literally drive from Chicago to Atlanta to Durham back to Chicago to make it to this game. So I did that. Yeah. And so uh, we went to the game, had a great game. Um, Duke blew somebody out. Um, <laughs> and then the next morning, I was driving back to Chicago. Who
1: was who was on the team at the time? Which, which Duke team was this?
0: This was the national championship team. Oh, um, Um, Yeah, this was the one with Zubac and a bunch of other. I was leaving the next morning and I was leaving Raleigh and there was this cop car that was like pacing me. And so I saw them pacing me. He pulls from behind me, drives all the way up right next to me, looks into my car and then drops back and starts to pace me again. He follows me for about seven minutes and then turns on his lights, um, pulls me over. He says, do you know why I I pulled you over? I'm thinking, yes, I know exactly why you pulled (laughs) me over. But I, of course, didn't say that. And then he goes, I was like, no, can you tell me why you pulled me over? He said, I pulled you over because you made an improper lane change. He said, when you switch lanes, there's supposed to be an entire car and a half length between you and the car before you that you're merging into the lane with. So I look at this dude like that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So he pulls me over and he goes, so where are you going? So I said, I'm going back to Chicago um, to go to school. He's like, oh, what school do you go to? I said, North Park, North Park Theological Seminary. He said, you're in seminary and gives me this like crazy look like it's unbelievable. I said, yes. He said, do you have some ID to prove that? So I'm thinking in my head, I don't have to prove to you that I'm in seminary, but I I my parents taught me right so I give him the ID. He looks at the ID and he smirks and then goes, "Huh?" and then throws it back at me. Then so I say, "Okay." And then he said he starts looking all around my car. And I don't know if you remember it, but back in the day um, when airlines used to give you headphones, they would oh, give yeah. you headphones in a little plastic bag that yeah. looks like a dime yeah. bag. Yeah. And so he sees a, that in my console, and he goes, what's that? And I said, what's what? And he said, right in the console. I said, so I'm going to move my hands from the wheel, and I'm going to move it down to pick up what you're asking me for. I said, it's just earphones. So I pick it up. I show it to him. He says, okay. He goes back to his car. He calls for backup. um, And then he comes back to me a few minutes before the second car with the police dog comes, and he says, Hey, when I pulled you over, you were acting a little nervous. And so I called for backup and they're gonna come and search your car. Is there anything in your car that we need to know about before we search your car? I said, Well, I just came from Atlanta. I'm a broke seminary student, so I brought all my dirty clothes with me in my and so I have a bunch of suitcases with a bunch of clothes, but No, there's nothing in there. And I know I have the legal right to tell him he can't search my car, but I also know that that would just agitate him. So I tell him, um, okay, sure, you can search my car. So he comes, um, the other officer, he has me stand on the side of the road, just like what you were saying, uh, the presumed guilt. um, And he has the police dog and himself go through my entire car ripping open my suitcases, my clothes flying literally onto the highway. Like, as this is happening, the other officer looks at me and says, I'm sorry, because she she clearly sees what's going on. Yeah. Um, the other officer, once he finishes, he doesn't put any of my clothes back. He doesn't close up any of my suitcases. He comes to me, he says, well, this is a, a, a well-known drug trafficking route from Durham to Chicago. And so... I pulled you. He tells me the real reason I pulled you over because we were suspicious that you were coming on this route this early in the morning. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, And ultimately he says, I searched your car. You're good to go. No apology, no acknowledgement, no anything. And I'm just sitting there robbed of my dignity and looking like I've been involved in criminal activity when I have done nothing. And then only to drive three more miles up through the Appalachians and my car breaks down on me and I end up having to spend the night there in the middle of nowhere.
1: Wow. Um, I was in high school going towards college. This is my senior year. Um, And um, I was going to get gas at a gas station on University Drive in Huntsville, Alabama for the people who ride there heading towards the mall. I saw a friend of mine who was at the gas station And he like, hey. And so I pulled in and talked to him. We chatted for a little bit. And then he pulled out. And then I was pumping the gas. And next thing you know, an unmarked SUV pulled right up behind me. And I was like, man, why is this SUV, like, all on my tail? You can get gas in a minute. Next thing you know, another SUV came out. And then my car was surrounded. And the SWAT came out. And they said, get out of the car, get out of the car, get out of the car. And I had a friend of mine who's about that life who was sitting in the passenger seat. He said, "We not getting out this car." I said, "Look, man, <laughs> <laughs> you better get out. Put your hand." They said, "Put your hands on yep. the um thing," and they we they got us out of the car. They stripped, they made us sit like on you know sit in the um the, the um spot, and they strip searched our car. They went through our trunk. They went they went through everything without any. And I said afterwards, I literally said to them, "Hey, you know." Um, why did you do this? And he said, this is a well-known drug spot. Yep. I remember thinking, this is also a well-known place to get yes. gas. <laughs> and the thing I thought about, though, when you said that, when you talked about the woman who, who, who fled, I remember thinking, when my friend said, we're not getting out of this car, my life, I was like, man, My life flashed before eyes, and I was careful because I'm gonna be honest. I grew up in the rough side of town, and I was about to get a football scholarship. And so, before we got in the car, I used to say to people, "If you got anything on you, any like, I I want everything out of the car when I drive it. Yep, because legally you're responsible. uh, Legally, I'm responsible. And so, I knew, I knew when the cops pulled me over, there was nothing in the car. Yeah, and so it's just those moments where you find yourself at this intersection of life and death, for just being black, either in a public space or in your home. And when you said that she fled the scene, she tried to flee the scene, I was thinking, man, what would have happened if my friend Q would have refused to get out of the car?
2: Hey everybody, Richard here producer of the Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation.
1: Some African-Americans see this and they see what's happening in the church and they see the church silence and it leads to a deep cynicism. What led you to say, okay, then rather than just being upset about these things, I'm really going to write and, and, and dedicate my life to helping the church do better.
0: So after I finished that master's program, I went and did my second master's at North Park theological seminary with a focus on, um, multi-ethnicity and justice. And so I stayed over after I finished at the seminary and taught for a year and a half. And then I took my first pastoral call, um, Out in West Oakland. And so as somebody who has been formed by the Christian Community Development Association, um, CCDA. CCDA, so I'm a board member. So I went and practiced what we preached. I went and listened to the community. And as I listened to the community, I would go and knock on doors and meet my new neighbors, particularly putting an emphasis on meeting longstanding residents of a gentrifying community. Um, And as I did that, I couldn't knock on five doors in a row without encountering a family whose life was marked by mass incarceration. But our congregation at that point wasn't involved with ministry to the incarcerated, walking alongside of families who had incarcerated loved ones, reentry or preventative work we had a detent. we had a alternative school that was literally right across the street from our church. And we had no relationship with them because they were high school, alternative school. And so those, they could be criminals, they could be thugs, they could be all these things that we think about. And so this was a multi-ethnic church in a black community that was pastor, senior pastored by a non-African American. And they were trying to figure out why, how they could get more black folk to come to the church. And so I brought, I, I was brought on staff to help do that. You no, I didn't fully understand that at the time. Yes. And um, so I said, you know, one of the most timeless wisdoms that Dr. Perkins ever said to me was that the call of the church is to immerse itself, to incarnate itself within the pain of the people that they're called to. And that's exactly what we weren't doing. And so I went and said, if we want to get more people to take us seriously and see us as a credible witness, we have to immerse ourselves within the pain of the people. And the pain of the people in this community and communities all across the nation is mass incarceration, the system that's unjustly focusing on impoverished communities of color. And so I said, this is what this would look like. And so I laid it out, and then they said, we're not interested
1: in that. So you use a language—I want to follow this up, but for some people who are— for whom this is a one-on-one conversation, and they don't understand what you mean when you say mass incarceration and how it affects people of color. How do you explain it to people briefly about what what you mean when you use that term?
0: So mass incarceration, really taking from Michelle Alexander's definition, really talks about um, how even though people, quote-unquote, serve their time, while they're behind bars, they continue to serve their time after they're released, and their sentence is done. Um, they can be, particularly people with felony convictions, can be legally discriminated upon in regards to housing, access to public benefits, um, and forever barred in some states from participating in the democratic process. Um, it makes finding long-time, long-term work and housing extremely difficult. And so, these these would be some of the um, markers of. Of. mass incarceration
1: and does mass incarceration in, include the tendency to over criminalize black behavior and excessively sentence them as well
0: yes for sure um, I mean the classic example would be the disproportionate sentencing between crack and powder, powder cocaine up until 2010 for the exact same amount of crack and powder the person possessing crack will receive a 100 times more severe sentence for the exact same amount of cocaine as the person
1: possessing powder and that's because and since crack cocaine was more prominent in black communities and cocaine were more prominent in white communities then it had the effect of making black crack use more criminal than The white use of cocaine.
0: Exactly. And so Obama said that he was going to fix the disparity in 2010, but he only partially fixed it. And so he reduced the disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. So there's still an 18 to 1 disparity that's on the books for the exact same amount. So what it it speaks to is how in a number of cases black and I would include brown folk are being incarcerated for the exact same offense, but they're more punitively incarcerated um, because the way that race and racism is baked within the DNA of certain legislation.
1: Does the school to prison pipeline factor into mass incarceration? Oh,
0: for sure. Um, there five conduits that really are flowing people into our system presently. It's the war on drugs, it's the school-to-prison pipeline, it's the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities, um, because right now we have 44 states plus the District of Columbia who have more people with severely diagnosed mental health impairments who are incarcerated than who are receiving treatment in the state's largest psychiatric facility. Mental health professionals seven years ago bluntly said prisons are the new asylums. Every single year, there are 90,000 people who are legally constituted as incompetent to stand trial, which means they literally don't even have the mental capacities to understand why they're standing in front of a judge. And instead of giving them the medical interventions they need, we incarcerate them. Uh, The other two pipelines would be the school-to-prison pipeline and then a pipeline that parallels the war on drugs that we just haven't coined as a war, and that would be the war on immigration. Those are the five pipelines that are funneling people in the system today. And then it's the privatization of prisons and how lucrative private prisons have become.
1: And so those issues, for the most part, aren't necessarily partisan. They're facts hiding in plain sight. And so once you became aware of them and you began to speak about them in your church, they said they weren't interested. How have you seen it be received in the wider community once you started writing and publishing and speaking about it? How how has the church responded to it? Yeah, I think
0: there's been a great response in that we finally reached the point where mass incarceration isn't actually a controversial issue anymore. There's actually bipartisan support that our criminal justice system is broken. Um, is fiscally irresponsible and it's unethical um, and it's exploitative. And so I think there's been I think the fact that both parties can name that and affirm that has opened up the church's ears to be able to hear and then respond because they don't have to feel like they're being, quote unquote, partisan or political in doing so. I, I intentionally help people understand that both parties are implicated in creating this system. And sustaining the system. But I think the other piece that was really important was uh, Michelle Alexander's, but great. Bryan Stevenson's great. Uh, But evangelicals in particular needed a a book that showed them how deeply biblical this work is and how scripture consistently commissions us to engage our criminal justice system and commune with our brothers and sisters behind bars. And so like things like the fact that five of the books of our Bible were written in prison. Um, Like if you literally take incarcerated people out of the Bible, the Bible falls apart. There is no Bible. Um, Matthew 25 says that we're supposed to uh, we're supposed to visit the incarcerated. It doesn't say if you're liberal, it doesn't say if you're progressive. It says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to commune with the incarcerated. Hebrews 13, three says that we're supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we were incarcerated suffering alongside of them. And in a nation right now where we have more prisons, jails and detention centers, than we do degree granting institutions. Let me say that in another way. There are literally more places in this country where you can get locked up than you can get a college education. Um, there is a prime opportunity for us to bear witness to our faith.
1: So when, when churches hear about this, on one response you say, okay, I don't want anything to do with it. But I'm assuming that sometimes they might be interested, but the uh, it seems overwhelming. Like mass incarceration feels like a national legislative problem. What kind of advice do you give to individual churches or people who are passionate about this as to where they begin to do this in their community and the practical ways in which the church can minister to those who are incarcerated and their families and also in a transition from the incarcerated state into freedom.
0: Yeah, so I say that every church should at least be involved in one of four ways. In the work of prevention, the work of ministering to the incarcerated, walking alongside of families with incarcerated loved ones, or in the work of reentry. There was a free video-based small group curriculum that was uh, produced in conjunction with the book that walks congregations through what tangible expressions of each of those four responses to our criminal justice system look like. The National Bar Association has found that there's over 44,000 restrictions for people who come out of the system finding long-term housing, finding long-term work, and then just to have a supportive community that's willing to receive them, walk alongside of them as they try to turn a new page in life congregations can, before people even get released to them, they can go within their community and find out what companies in their community are willing to hire people with records. They can find what organizations are willing to house people with a record. They can think outside the box. Um, for example, me and my wife, uh, we bought a two flat here in Chicago. We live in the top flat, and we use this the bottom flat for transitional housing for women coming out of the system so that they can create a credit history so that they can have good references. And so they can sustain themselves in a way that as they try to go get other housing, they already have an advocate on their behalf. Everybody's not in the situation where they can do that financially, but congregations can do that.
1: My father was one of those people who came out of the system. He was in and out of prison most of my um, childhood. And when he got out of prison, the last time he couldn't find a job, there was a sense in which he wanted to get out and he wanted to have a different kind of life, but he he didn't have the opportunities. Like yeah. people wouldn't hire him. Yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't give him uh, housing because he didn't have a credit history. Yep, yeah. and so it's all of the things that we think of as inconveniences for us. Oh, you know, have you lived in the same residence for the last two years when you apply to things? Those things become markers. Have you ever committed to it? You know, I know when I go in and apply for a job, I can just click no. I've never been ever, you know, accused of a felony, this, that, or the other. And so I know that those, that, that creates a real deep, sense of disappointment. And not just for my, my father, but for my family members, who you know, who are my age, who come out of the system and who they will try for a few months or six months or 12 months, and the system feels close to them, and then they'll go back to whatever they were doing beforehand. What fear do you think hinders churches from being involved in this more? There's a, if, it's, if it's a fact hiding in plain sight, and it's a tremendous need, what's keeping our churches from seeing people like my father and my cousins as being people who are worthy of their investment?
0: I think the biggest hindrance is a lack of proximity. Um, and that's why I think Matthew 25 is so critical. Like, we've interpreted it in a number of different ways, and as a New Testament scholar, I bow to you. But I believe that that passage really boils down to proximity. Jesus is saying that we are supposed to be proximate and in relationship with these people that society teaches us to avoid, look down upon, and be indifference towards. Because once we're in proximity with them, there's a new revelation that happens. We, 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 there's new truths of the gospel that are unleashed. And there are ways in which we start to identify the ways in which we have conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world by the way that we slowly but surely dehumanize the sick, the the uh, homeless, the incarcerated. And it's through proximity that we actually start to deconstruct those stereotypes and those ways in which we have slowly but surely been taught to see ourselves as estranged from and disconnected from our brothers and sisters on the margins.
1: I would say you should never bow down to a New Testament scholar. Sometimes we just use <laughs> fancy ways to avoid what the Bible says plainly. <laughs> so don't worry. I mean, like, be skeptical of us. Yeah. But you now you said proximity was a thing, but you also said earlier that your church is right across the street and that it wasn't doing things. Yeah. And so for the churches that are in those communities, is it fear? No. So I think it's proximity is the
0: first thing. Because through proximity, we actually start to deconstruct those fears um, because we actually commune with each other and we actually say, hey, this person actually isn't that different from me. Hey, this person made a mistake. but as Brian Stevenson says that if anybody should get this as Christians, that no person should be ever forever defined by the worst thing they've ever done. If anybody should know that it's us as the church, we should get this truth. And so um, I think it really comes down to a question of, do we really believe in redemption? Um, And do we really believe that all people are capable of redemption? Uh, I think this is where scripture comes back important for me. And I'll get back to the fear piece, Mm. but for me, it's really important that Scripture tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Not once we cleaned our lives up, not once we got everything together, but while we were yet sinners and while we were yet enemies of God. And so, if the only reason why we're part of the family of God is because of the grace of God, then that grace that first claimed us and adopts us should also be the grace that informs our response to our brothers and sisters today who stand in the need of grace. But if we have the belief that we have to keep them safe from us because they can never come back into our communities and make our communities safer places, they can never come back into our communities and actually work to help turn the ties for other people who might be going down that path, then we always are going to see ourselves as an us and them and never a we. And so I think proximity actually starts to break down those fears so you can actually rehumanize and see the image of God in somebody that you've been slowly but surely taught to see as just... A super predator on one side yeah. or uh you know uh shout out to the and, clinton star yeah, i can't say I mean that. i mean but <laughs> okay. it's bo- it's on bo- both, it's sides. both it's sides. sides it's on both it's sides. sides you know
1: i get it i get it no i'm saying like I, it's hard for me not to um you know the the willie lynch commercial like it's 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 so everybody 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 has their dirt
0: We live in a nation where our politicians sensationalize violent crime, and they do it to incentivize us to cling to punitive responses to crime um, and to support zero tolerance, three strikes you're out, law and order. But the vast majority of people who are locked up in our nation are locked up for nonviolent offenses. But you would never know that when you turn on the news, because all they do is over sensationalize violent crime to make us, again, believe that we have to keep ourselves safe from these people
1: i've always thought it was amazing that three strikes and you're out became a thing and it's from a sport like had there been four strikes in baseball then it would be called four strikes and you're out (laughs) and so this this idea that like we have a criminal justice system that makes some assessment about the viability of long-term imprisonment based upon an analogy from a sport, which is a, which is a construct, it's always struck me. It's like fundamentally insane. It'd be like fourth down and now you got to punt. You got to go to jail for a decade. It just feels like on the face of... I, I, I really thought that was fundamentally, clearly such a marketing ploy. Yeah. Like what inherently about committing three crimes allows you to maximize the third sentence? There's nothing in it other than someone decided to do it. As someone who sees... The church fail consistently. Like, what gives you hope to keep going? And like, what's the cost to you emotionally, as someone who kind of plows through seeing so much negativity, you know? And what's happening to our to our people, and the people everywhere? Like, a, are you? How do you? How do you keep going and not want to pull your braids out? I mean, your dreads. I call them dreads. Yeah, pull your lots. dreads out.
0: Yeah. Um. So, Michelle Alexander was really helpful for me in this. She said, you know, there was once upon a time where we thought. That slavery was too big of a system to ever deconstruct it and bring it down. There was a time we thought Jim Crow would last forever. There was a time we thought suffrage was going to be this eternal reality. And she was like, but there were enough faithful people who showed up to do their part. And when enough of us faithfully show up and consistently do our part, then we have the power to to deconstruct systemic evil. And I really believe that history bears witness to that. I mean, even going back to the Dr. King quote about you know the arc of the universe bends towards it's justice. Long, but it bends towards it's justice. long, but it bends towards justice. And I think when when people of faith. Don't have the belief that that's true, then we we are we're paralyzed by the magnitude of what we're confronted with. But when we actually mobilize and we actually press into our faith, and the thing that for me individually allows me to do this is at the end of the day we already know the end of the story we already know preach now we already know <laughs>
1: tell them about the lord we Sorry. already know
0: that christ wins and christ is inviting us as the body of christ to participate in this uh, transformation of the world as ambassadors of reconciliation co laborers with christ and so i'm not called to end mass incarceration I'm called to help mobilize the church so enough of us can step up and show up and do our parts faithfully and consistently so that we can actually bring this corrupt system to its knees and create a more, a true system that provides opportunity for true transformation. Healthy reintegration into community and a prophetic uh, articulation that no person is beyond redemption. Like that's what we have to be about in this work right now. And the gospel and my deep belief that scripture is true enables me to continue to step up and show up and bear witness to that.
1: I feel like I should have said amen. So I'm going to repeat what you said and just, you know, just be be in pure joy. I said a thousand times because I talk about systemic racism of which mass incarceration is one manifestation that the resurrection has to change our plausibility structures. Once you live in a world where dead people are brought back to life by the power of God, then nothing becomes impossible. And sometimes we're limited by what we see. And I, and I talk about how we have to develop a theological imagination rooted in the kingdom of God that allows us to hope for something better. And you talk about how it's precisely your, Christian faith that motivates you, but not just any Christian faith. Cause like you got, you said something I get to, I get to, I get to point this on too this brother dealing with mass incarceration believes the scriptures are true and the truthfulness of these texts leads him into the community. Because sometimes, because of the history, the way the Christianity developed in, in, in the States, there's this social gospel kind of evangelical divide where they think that these social issues leads to a deconstruction of the faith. But actually, I think that what makes the Christian most dangerous is that when, we ha- when we're anchored in these scriptures and we say that I want to see these things in these texts lived out in community. And so when you asked me earlier, as to like why I invited you on The Disruptors. There's a bunch of people talking about mass incarceration, believers and non-believers. But what I think makes you disruptive is that you're talking about mass incarceration from the perspective of these things are to, true. And what I want to say is that people like you are disruptive to the entire paradigm of who does what within the church. And what we want to do on this podcast is to say there's another way of being faithful. There is sometimes people, people on the left and on the right don't want us to exist because we complicate narratives. Yep. And so like when you went there, you 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 spoke into my life. So thank you. You asked me what gives me hope for the podcast, which you didn't do, but what gives me hope is when people like you say things like that. Now I'm feeling good. I have a question. <laughs> he gets one question every three episodes, so make it a good one.
2: <laughs> you talked about Catherine Johnson, who had the SWAT team come into her house. The way you deliver that story is so like factual. sort of sounds like a, a TikTok, like this is what happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then the other thing that struck me is that you clearly had personal experience, but you didn't start with that. So what motivates the way that you approach this subject, essentially objective over subjective?
0: Because I believe that sometimes we can rely on personal stories and narrative to fuel us in the work. And I believe the thing that has to fuel, fuel us and root us in the work is the gospel. Um... For me, Scripture's consistent commission to be engaged in this conversation and to actually be advocating for a more restorative system is the thing that should compel the church into this work. You shouldn't have to personally know somebody who is impacted by mass incarceration. You shouldn't have to have a family member who has been um, impacted by the system. The gospel should be enough, Um and because of the way in which um, our nation in particular is so uh, racially segregated and stratified, there are a number of people who might not have that kind of personal narrative, but even still, the gospel still consistently calls us and beckons us to be a part of the restoration of all things. And so this is one of the things where I think theology becomes really important. Uh, We made a reference earlier, you you were referencing uh, my response earlier, but when we talk about the salvific work of Jesus on the cross, and we talk about what actually happens when Christ um, kind of Rises from the grave, we usually, as evangelicals, we focus so much on the fact that he liberates us from our individual sin. But the text also says that he makes a mockery of the powers and the principalities, yes. and he ultimately. The resurrection just doesn't fix us internally. It also is a correction to the distorted nature of systems and structures and evil and sin in our world. And so we are compelled and empowered by that same Holy Spirit to continue to be reconciling the world to God's self. It doesn't say just broken people. It says the world, which includes our broken systems and structures. And well. you're
1: going to make the New Testament scholar come in to me. But here's the thing. And so you always have to get a caveat so people don't mishear you. So here's the caveat. Yes, Jesus Christ dying on the cross is the atoning sacrifice that brings about our reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of our sins. But it is also at the same time a critique of the totalizing power of the state that killed an innocent man. And if you don't think that the New Testament makes a point of saying that Jesus was actually innocent and that Herod's... I mean, not Herod, both Herod and Pilate who think that they have authority from the government. What does the government do when you get out of line? The, the power of the state is the power to kill you. That is the state's final political ploy in the crucifixion in the first century was political. They crucified you publicly, not just to kill you, but to send a message to the populace that we are in control. So when Jesus Christ defeats death and now the state's, main power is pulled away and oh death where is your state the question also becomes oh government where is your state? Mm-hmm. which is why when you get to the book of Acts they are not scared anymore yeah. and the people who are not afraid of death are very difficult to control politically. And so is the Bible simply about our political liberation? No, it's not. not it's about either. us being reconciled to God and being in a community with one another. But the thing that the gospel does to have political implications is a distortion of the cross and a misappropriation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the consistent testimony of the black church from the beginning, which began as— in the context of critiquing established law, namely slavery. And so you're correct that we always have to do the theological work at the front here. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. And we're not even saying that in a sense of yes, we're exasperated. I glory in the fact that Jesus saved me from my sins. And I, I mean, I just said yesterday, the gospel gives me the tools both to deal with white supremacy and to deal with my personal sin. And all of those things matter. But what I really get, what I want to get at when you said all of that is being comfortable enough to and, and honest enough to read the entirety of the New Testament and I just pull out the passages that allow us to maintain our narrative. Homily over. Like New Testament scholar turned off, interview host back on. Um, now the book, but I think yeah. is really critical because I believe that that truth that
0: you just bore witness to is the linchpin that has been the difference in black church ethics. Yes, uh, because we know that the scripture tells us that we can't fear the one who just has the power to kill the body, but we must ultimately fear the one who has the power to kill the soul as well. And so when you're liberated from cowering before imperial power or the power of the state, then you are liberated to freely and fully live for the gospel unashamedly in a way that says, I will bear witness to this and I know that this news is good even if it cost me my very life.
1: Or if it cost me my career. Yeah. <laughs> in this pocket. I had a friend of mine who I was uh um, <laughs> I put on the internet and I don't. I think I, I deleted the tweet because I think, cause was in my feelings. You should never tweet your way through it. <laughs> but I was like, um, "I put, I'm done playing with y'all." An African American proper. He texted me. He said, "Like Esau, man." <laughs> he said, "I agree, but you see, you're like you're a little turned up right now." Yeah. But there is a sense in which part of faithfulness to the gospel message is dangerous because it upsets or disrupts ways of reading the bible not the bible itself but the patterns of readings that we've come into contact with and that that disruption is also misheard in so many ways yep it's misheard as signaling three or four things that come from it because of the way these ideas cluster together yeah and so it's really hard To me, and I know this is in your own—because I could tell even in the interview that you're very careful to, like, keep the Scripture at the forefront of everything because we're always misheard. Yep. So do you feel like that you deal with that kind of distortion or people hear what you're talking about and they assume three or four things about what you believe about the rest of the Bible of the Christian tradition?
0: Without a doubt. Without a doubt. One of the things that I've learned is how— theologians of color oftentimes get misinterpreted because of what you just said. Um, But I think the, the reason why it happens is that I think theologians of color are coming from communities where we have been discipled to make these connections. And so for me, I think it's really important. I always try to lead with scripture to help people understand, like, this is the starting point, and this is what compels me to move A to connect to B so we can get to C. And so I think it's really important. Um, I found that the biggest uh, misunderstanding around some of the ethical conclusions, I don't think a lot of people actually have issues with the ethical conclusions, but they don't understand how we got to the conclusion a lot of the time. And so I wanted to take care to help walk people through how the process all works together.
1: You, If you ever have a time to listen to this podcast, there's been different voices who've come in. We have varying levels of patience for this work. yeah. And so some people talk about policing black voices. Yep. And so some people go, you know what, forget it. You know, I'm not going to be police. I'm going to say what I want to say without any kind of consideration of it. And they would think that even the effort to be understood in a white context is in some sense like losing something authentic. But you've talked in the way that I've tried to articulate this idea is rather than being policed, I try to think of it from what does love require me to do for my neighbor. Yep. But what motivated you to do the hard work of still explaining yourself? Because one of the things that I say is that in an African American context, we begin with mass incarceration as a problem. And we begin to ask the question of what does the gospel have to say about it? But in an evangelical context, they begin with, well, these are liberal issues, and if you believe mass incarceration is a problem, then you don't believe the Bible is true. It's like a strange connection, but it happens. So what motivates you to have that patience to kind of slowly walk people to a place that other communities begin with?
0: Because I actually believe that uh, the starting point that you referenced for black churches is becoming less and less true. Um, I I believe that, and, and I got this from... Ferguson and different things like that, where black churches were literally locking their doors on activists and not allowing them to come in because there there has been this shift within the theological landscape of our nation in which we no longer understand civil disobedience as a proper response to the gospel in the midst of our fallen, broken, institutionally distorted world. And so I am trying to create a foundation in which we understand that we come from a tradition where historically early Christians understood to stand in opposition to the empire was part and parcel of what it meant to follow Jesus in a way that you were a disruption to those social structures that were crushing and preying upon certain groups in a way that you bore witness to your love in a public way in a demonstration that actually caused the state to hate you i mean scripture john 15 tells us that the world should hate us um as it hated jesus because of our prophetic demonstration of love in the midst of these kind of unjust systems and structures
1: i'm gonna have to like because we're just gonna sit here and, and rigorously agree so i'm gonna have to like stop talking to you and then we're gonna have to like exchange cell phone numbers and we can text our way through it let's do it There is no argument that can convince me that what's happening to black and brown people in this country as it relates to the police do not need reformation because I have been a victim of it on numerous occasions. So it's not a hypothesis. So when you try... If I say, like, this happening with the cops, and people say, well, what if it was a well-known drug spot? What if it was this? What if it was that? It's like, I was there and this happened. You weren't there. People are easily... Like they sit outside the situation and they have three or four biblical Bible verses that are like sitting there and they just throw the verses at people without hearing the actual story. I would tell you something that was really troubling. He talked about how the police asked for his college ID and they asked to the search his car and he knew it was illegal and he couldn't do anything about it. I had had a police officer who had followed me and asked for my university ID. And we both in that moment doing the moral calculus of saying, I have to do this in order to get home alive. That was to me, shocking in a way that reawakened me to the scope of the problem. Cops in different states are pulling over black people and not believing that they're going to seminary. Till for a long time, pulled over for things that were manifestly untrue or unnecessary. Tree with skepticism and then dismissed is at least a window into the widespread distrust that probably pervades African-American communities. People listen to the entire podcast, they're going to see that African-Americans largely agree on what's happening to people of color in this country. But you see a variety of rhetorical responses to it. And that ranges from Unveiled, unrelenting kind of criticism to a careful articulation of the of the issue, rooted in personal experience and temperament. And maybe one of the things that makes me an interesting, a complicated host is that depending on the day of the week. I'm tempted to want to burn it all down, but I'm also tempted to say, no, no, no. Let's carefully articulate this in such a way that gives the the widest audience a, a chance of hearing it. And so Dominique did. He did a good job of saying, step over like the scriptures on your way to disagree with me. And then when you leave, you got to walk past the Bible on your way out. And then both times you're convicted by what you see. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We'll be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at ivpress.com.